Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Well, Vinay, excited to have you back on the show. You have a great point of view, obviously, on fintech and Southeast Asia. So excited to talk a little bit more and dive into what's driving the recent boom and bust cycles that's been happening. So I think this will be a masterclass at hopefully a deep conversation. Vinay, could you introduce yourself real quick? Hey, Jeremy, excited to be back again. Firstly, I also want to say congratulations on how far the podcast has come since the last recording. It's so cool to see that we're almost at the top of the charts in terms of business podcasts in uh, Southeast Asia. So I feel like I'm speaking to a much larger audience than I probably did in the past, which is scary, but also fun. Quick intro on me in in case uh, this is the first time we're meeting. So I have kind of had a career mostly in fintech. I currently work as the regional head of WISE, and specifically, I take care of the API piece for WISE, which is called WISE Platform. And I've been kind of involved in fintech for a while. When we first met Jeremy, we were both in New York. That's when I worked at a company called Arcus. I used to head up the Northam operations and uh, was director of Northam for Arcus. We exited that company to MasterCard in 2020, and I decided to take a journey to Singapore to start something new, which is when I joined WISE, which is then TransWise, and TransWise went public and rebranded to WISE, and uh, it's it's been fun times at WISE. When I joined, it was 2,100 people to 5,000 people in just under two years. It's been wild. It's also been really cool to see how Southeast Asia's kind of taken on fintech, how regulation has been changing. The other piece that I also do, I think this might be relevant to maybe conversations around startups and founders, is that I run an angel investing syndicate called Fintech Angel Operators, which I co-founded with Chia Zhengyang, who does a ton of podcasts, and you may have uh, seen him or heard him, and Kang, who is the co-founder of Financier, which is a leading Southeast Asian fintech company. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So what we've seen is there have been a huge boom of fintech companies in Southeast Asia, and now there's a bit of a bust going on where a lot of fintech startups are starting to close or starting to fire folks, especially in Southeast Asia. So what's happening here from your perspective? So I think like companies are going through this painful but probably necessary step of downsizing after probably three years of easy money in fintech. Many went public in the last two years, I think pretty unrealistic valuations. Jeremy, you and I can probably think of one or two and have seen pretty sharp corrections. And while I think this sucks, it'll probably free up a lot of fintech fluent talent in the market over the next year, which means we'll have one thing fixed at least, which is that there'll be a broader hiring pool available to founders. 
founders have always complained that hiring is a problem. They can't get the right talent. It's also probably going to be a lot cheaper to hire due to less salary inflation from these late stage fintechs that have had the money, had the capital and kind of deployed it mostly on hiring the people they wanted to. I think that's probably what's going to happen. The other piece is that I think it's also going to open up a lot of founders who maybe were not thinking of being founders. They kind of found themselves in this predicament of not having a role that they kind of were leaning back on and need to kind of figure something out and have realized that they've actually been sitting on their back with a problem in the fintechs that they've worked at, but maybe didn't get the resources, maybe didn't get the bandwidth maybe didn't get the interest from the founding team or the executives in the team to actually push it through. So I do think that there's probably going to be a lot of promising, strong fintechs that are founded in the next few years as a result. So what went wrong? You know, you said there was easy money and so, so forth. Like, what does that mean? So I think like for the first half of the 2010s, like, Fintech wasn't even really a word. It was a pretty unproven product. It also wasn't an attractive founder space. But Fintechs increasingly found this kind of PMF in the last, I'd say, five years. So what happened as a result is that it created pretty strong signal to new founders that Fintech's actually this kind of very viable product category. That coupled with the fact that venture has just been kind of flush with cash in the past few years has just made it really like easy money for fintechs. So as a result, I think we probably caused too many fintech founders to come out. So two out of every five YC founders were fintech founders, believe it or not, for the past few cohorts. So I think it just caused way too many people to get into fintech, way too many fintechs to be probably born without enough problems to be solved. I, I think that's probably how I'd sum it up. On the plus side, it's also led to a lot of like super intelligent people from financial services, so traditional finance or TradFi, as people like to call it, taking that founder leap. And I've seen a lot of these folks actually become fantastic founders. So yeah, that's the other side of it as well. What's interesting is that you said that too many founders, not enough problems. I mean, I don't think any founder really works up in the morning saying, wow, I'm working on a problem that doesn't make sense. So what's the, I think, structural mismatch, right? Between, you know, like you said, from your perspective, it's like too many founders choosing problems that don't really matter versus all the founders who think they're solving the a big category, a big problem, a strong approach. I think there's a lot of founders that kind of get into fintech without having quite understood what they're solving for or what necessarily the market looks like. So I think it could boil down to two things. So one is... Does the industry need it? And secondly, is it something that's possible to be done? I'll kind of break it down from those two. The first one is like, does the industry need it? So I think a lot of people sometimes wake up in the morning and say, ah, I want to create this product that solves for this vertical because I think it'll be great. So it could be maybe trying to create a new bank for creators. But before you get there, are you a creator yourself? And have you maybe understood the pain points of creators and what they might need, right? So I've seen this time and time again, where at least in the past two or three years, founders have come up with ideas that they don't particularly relate to or have awareness of. So what that's led to is kind of big gaps in terms of what the product offers. 
and also in terms of say you're a creator right like you know that there are certain channels certain group chats certain conversations that you're a part of and those are the best distribution networks to get sold to if you're a founder that doesn't quite understand that doesn't quite relate to that you're going to not figure that out and you're not going to be able to distribute to those networks so that's the first one the second one i said is like is it possible right like kind of founders trying to solve problems that probably might be too hard to solve so that i think relates to what i previously mentioned about fintech fluency and i think part of fintech fluency relates to your understanding of payment regulation and compliance and also how financial institutions work right so if you want to start up for example some sort of company that accepts crypto globally or you maybe want to start some cross border crypto company the first thing you want to do before you start raising money is understand from a regulatory perspective is this possible and maybe a question to ask before that is like if nobody's done it why is that is it because it's such a hard problem that people haven't kind of cracked the nut on it or is it just that regulation just isn't there to kind of actually build against it so i think if founders kind of like approached those two angles before getting into fintech they'd probably have probably less stupid problems to solve in my opinion the thing is that you could actually still be rewarded quite handsomely in 2020 or 2021 maybe even 2022 at least the earlier part with stupid problems like that because frankly the money exists and if fintech is tied to your founding story it's kind of sufficient to kind of get that raise so yeah that's probably what i think what do you think jeremy like do you think that there are kind of founders coming in to solve problems that are not worth solving i think founders are always looking for problems to solve and if the problem is worth solving i think there'll be customers who will pay them to solve it i think what's interesting is that the threshold of that pain you know can be masked if you have a lot of easy money right and so if you have a lot of easy money you can find people customers who are willing to pay for it because it's their number 3 number 4 number 5 problem but not necessarily the number 1 problem and so to some extent i think the problem of easy money is that it causes i think the threshold of what the problems they're searching for right you know the quality and the size of the problem ends up being i think an order of magnitude smaller versus what's needed to build i think a high growth startup and i think that's how a lot of founders got caught out right which is that they felt like it was a big problem exactly but to some extent it wasn't as big a problem as they thought because the money had made it easy for them to acquire customers and so so forth so you know obviously you've seen a lot of startups as an angel syndicate right and these are smart founders who are working their ass off right to solve it sell customers build a pitch deck pitch to you what are some common mistakes that you see them make that they don't necessarily understand that they're making I'll try and kind of think of that as like what are early problems that founders make and probably what are mid stage founders problems so probably like the early problems that I think founders make is kind of tied to what we were talking about earlier which is what kind of problems are they looking out to solve and if i look at some of the founders that have come up with startup ideas typically around consumer led products it's not really informed by what consumers want but rather their perception of what consumers want and typically what they've done is they've taken a mishmash of various 
infrastructure pieces that they can find. So they might get a corporate card that's issued by someone in the space. They would take an account product and kind of build that. And then they'd get some kind of lending product from somewhere else and take that. And then assume that by putting it all together, they've actually solved for convenience and they've solved for what someone wants. But Really what they've just done is they've just taken a bunch of apps and built it in one single app. So I think what really needs to be done is kind of think more highly of the customer <laughs> because the customer is not going to be fooled by your bundling of basic services. The customer fundamentally needs more. So one way to do that is actually try and build maybe better efficiencies around each core product, right? Like how can you make maybe lending to that customer better. Like what decisions need to be factored in to the lending process that allows this customer to receive credit where they previously didn't get credit and so on. So I'd say that that's a main one that I think kind of needs to be addressed, which is how do you stop underestimating the customer and kind of just rebundling things so that they can kind of have what is effectively just a few apps grouped together. So that's the first one. I think that kind of needs to be considered a little bit more. The second one is kind of what I'd say is a big issue, which is like, how do you make more partnerships happen in the space instead of kind of fighting against the fact that there is a big need for financial institutions, especially to support, right? So I think like a lot of fintechs come into the space. And I think this is the same with crypto, kind of wanting to be unique and kind of wanting to kind of push against the financial system without understanding that there are these true OGs in the space that have actually built really, really good products and really, really good and well-built rails. So how do we un understand that like that bank and fintech partnership is something that needs to be developed? So this could be through kind of being involved in corporate accelerators with, with banks. It could be through trying to sell deals directly to banks, trying to kind of understand that most money actually moves with banks. So how is it possible that we can actually distribute our services through the banks to the end customers who invariably would be financial services customers, right? I think that embedded finance experience is something that I think founders need to try and invest more in and try and figure out because I think that's a big gap, especially in Southeast Asia. What I've observed is that there's a big focus towards consumer. Um, there's some focus towards enterprise, but there's little focus towards selling directly to financial institutions. The main thrust has been how do we take from financial institutions data on customer patterns, whether it's on spending, whether it's on credit lines that have been issued and selling that towards, say, merchants and not so much the other way around. I think that's a big focus that probably needs to shift. And then I think finally, like probably like the distribution channels need to be worked out a little bit better. I think at the moment, founders really focus towards some of the usual suspects in terms of like customer acquisition, which is AdWords, Facebook, influencers. And this just causes, especially if you have the same cohort in terms of like what you're trying to sell as fintech products, over competition. So, you know, it's like who can name all the six payroll and income verification API providers that launch around the same time? It's just way too many. So 
how can we create like at least in this new market conditions where there's probably going to be fewer how can we create that space for companies to actually come in and try and make an actual name for themselves in terms of that distribution how do you brand yourself in a way that's actually unique and strong to customers without being kind of in the same space i think that's probably what i'd say or what i'd advise to founders feels like partnering with banks is like sleeping with the enemy right you know, all these startups are really saying like, you know, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And the only way we're a billion dollar company is to become the new visa, right? Of X. I need to become the DBS of Y. And the only way to become a billion dollar company is if that pie comes from the financial institution or implicitly, right? I mean, obviously, I think you can definitely build an agency, right? Or something that consults or sells to these financial institutions with a long sales cycle. Yeah. You can provide some kind of data advantage, so and so forth. But how is it that founders are trying to build that billion dollar company? How are they going to figure out how to share pie or take pie or create pie? Okay, firstly, I think it's kind of stupid when founders all want to build a billion dollar company because that's <laughs> unrealistic and probably ill-advised. But for the founders that do want to kind of think about how to succeed in the space, I'd say that banks are not necessarily the enemy. They're just sort of the incumbents. And I would just view it as that. Like if I was to just kind of take an example of like WISE, right? Like I, I think WISE was probably founded very much on this principle that banks probably not doing the best job in terms of being transparent to their customers. Probably could be a little bit clearer in terms of how they're doing FX and what they're actually kind of costing customers. So that was the initial like impetus for the founding of the company. But sooner or later, realize that like actually most money actually moves with banks. So what might be better is just to get them on our agenda rather than kind of moving customers away from banks. Because ultimately, when you have your loan with a bank, when you have your credit card with a bank, when you have your salary paid into the bank, and that's maybe your own user experience for your financial life. That's probably kind of the best place to also then remit money or have your global money experience, right? So how do you then take that experience to the next level with maybe a better speeds, better costs, right? So that's been the experience, at least for WISE, which is that banks have such deep moats that it's just better to build with those moats, put in a few yachts in that moat <laughs> to make the experience a bit more pleasant then try and kind of throw sand all into the moat and try and build something of your own instead and i think the same goes for every single fintech that's trying to build something incredibly unique or incredibly new which is how can you integrate into the user's financial life instead of standing out as something of your own like i think there's always this desire to capture the entire user's life entire user's journey. I think if you're building, especially something in the early stage, it's just not realistic. So what might be better is like to think about is like, how do you embed that incredibly cutting edge experience that only you are, you know, have the edge on building, right? Like only you have the awareness of this particular niche and that you'd like to kind of make sure that that experience is tailored towards the user. And that a bank who maybe has 250 products is not kind of geared towards solving that, right? So for WISE, it's cross-border payments. 5,000 people focus on just making your cross-border experience better. 
that's why there's that edge. For another company, it could be maybe kind of improving the lending experience. How can we make end-to-end mortgage ultimately a more delightful experience to customers? And selling that technology to banks, I can kind of give an example, is like Upstart. So Upstart is a US-based mortgage provider, and they have this product called Upstart for Banks. So it's effectively selling what they've sold direct to consumer, kind of have labeled it as a B2B product and are selling it to banks. Effectively, they're dogfooding the product. They're saying that we have kind of users appreciating and loving this product. And I think that your users will love the product as well. So I think it's a win-win. If I could continue down this track, I also think like this is where my last fintech that I worked at, Arcus, also did a major pivot. So started off as a consumer brand, consumer product, attempted to do bill payments for consumers, did reasonably well at it. I wouldn't say it was kind of like the killer category for bill payments in the US. Where it really shone is where kind of started doing distribution to banks and also to fintechs and lenders in the US, particularly the larger sorts of like lenders in the US. And that's where the traction actually started picking up. That's where one CAC is not just kind of one user. It's actually a whole bank with an entire cohort of users. That really allows for scale. That really allows for the investors that have backed you to see the types of return, especially on revenue that they would be expecting, especially at the early to mid stages. So that's where I probably say like, it's not quite sleeping with the enemy. It's kind of finding that collaboration that that ultimately sparks a win-win. But I think so many startups just end up dying because the sales cycle is too long. They get stuck in pilot hell. And even in the two examples you mentioned, both of these startups actually started out attacking, right? Or taking away a slice of business that could have belonged to the bank. For example, cross-border payments. Uh, Same thing for Arcus and so many examples you shared. They seem to be like build and then at some point, I don't know, David is attacking Goliath at something. And then after a while, it's just like, okay, maybe we can team up with Goliath at some point, right? Yeah. Maybe all the founders are right. They should continue attacking the banks until there's a certain point where they add on product that's B2B. Yeah, I suppose that's a kind of interesting trend that you pointed out. A lot of fintech founders, even successful ones, kind of start out trying to fight Goliath and then trying to pivot towards... uh, helping Goliath instead. I feel like we could learn from experience potentially. Like we could learn from seeing that a lot of companies have realized that B2C revenue can exist concurrently with B2B revenue. So why not start off with that as standard? Why not start off with kind of two distribution channels? One through, you know, your direct consumer, which will ultimately help you Also have a heartbeat towards what customers want and build towards that. And at the same time, also distribute on a B2B level. I don't think that it needs to kind of live in two separate kind of paradigms. I feel like there's a lot of overlap in terms of learnings. Certainly, like there's a lot of challenge, especially in the long sales cycles that you'd have to endure. But if you're able to have a compelling product, I think the sales cycles will show for themselves to not be too long. Procurement can be moved quickly if you have the right product and you have the right hearts and minds to be one. Someone said recently that, you know, in the era of like chat GPT and kind of more and more like generative AI and text-based selling happening, that whining and dining and the traditional methods of sales actually are going to come back. 
And I couldn't agree more. I think relationships and actually fundamentally dialing into how can you help people is going to become really important today. And what's interesting is that, you know, Web3 had this promise of replacing all Web2 fintech. So what do you think about that promise? I was skeptical from the start, like at least in terms of replacing everything. I still believe, let's be clear, I still believe in some of the tenets of Web3 and crypto for sure. Do I think it's going to replace the entire ecosystem? I kind of doubt it. So like I think one core thing that some people, at least the crypto diehards say is that crypto is going to replace cross-border payments completely or crypto is going to become the de facto way that we transact from customer to customer. I think that like the recent movements have shown that like it's pretty volatile space. I think there's been a huge reputational damage, at least for crypto in the past few months that will probably take a long time to reverse. It's really unfortunate. And I think what it means is that regulated, especially like well acclimatized fintechs can actually fill this space pretty well. So what are the problems effectively that crypto and Web3 were trying to solve, right? So I think probably Web3 was trying to really solve for ownership and how do you make sure that there's kind of linkages between users and their assets. That piece, I think, is quite uniquely solved by the decentralized approach of a blockchain. I don't think that fintech can come in and solve that. That's probably something that will be uniquely a Web3 piece that will continue to kind of grow. I think it's still pretty niche. People currently look at their NFTs and kind of consider that to be their assets and that's it. But I think it will grow into more things. So your car will be registered on the blockchain. Your luxury goods will also be on the blockchain. It'll be verified in a way that if you go to any store, instead of pulling up your serial number, you should have something of a blockchain ID, maybe even stored on your MetaMask that can actually kind of correlate to whatever goods you own. So that piece I don't think is going to be solved by fintech or probably any Web2 solution. The piece that I think that probably crypto and Web3 tried to solve that will be challenging to solve is payments. I remember on a podcast, Chamath said that by 2025, Visa and MasterCard will be gone because of crypto. I firmly believe that to be quite false. I think it's a bold bet. I love Chamath. I love his bold positions. But I think that's one which is tricky because firstly, I think payments requires a lot of buy-in. So it requires buy-in from regulators and it also requires buy-in from financial institutions. The first piece is well understood. You need to have the licenses, you need to have the compliance, you need to have the AML and uh, processes in place. The second piece is, I think, a bit less understood, which is how do you make sure that your financial counterparties that might host funds and hold funds are willing to contract with you, willing to receive money from you and have risk tolerances that kind of will allow for you to be part of the payment and settlement journey. So At the moment, I think that there's a huge amount of skepticism that we can have crypto firms in any part of that payment and collection journey. For example, if you're just sending, maybe acquiring funds via a POS terminal, are we going to trust that if those funds come directly into a crypto balance or from a crypto balance, 
will we want that? So it's not coming from fiat, it's coming directly from crypto. Or on the other side, cross-border payments. If you're funding directly from a crypto balance and it's going through a global cross-border flow, are we going to allow for that? I think some companies say yes. I'd say a vast majority currently say no. So I don't believe that with at least that sentiment on the market in the next five to 10 years that there will be widespread, I'd say, kind of replacement. Will there be adoption? I think so. There might be some companies that pick it up and associated consumers that also therefore pick it up. But I'd say the notion of replacement is kind of tricky. Do you think crypto will just end up sleeping with the banks in the end? Just like other fintech company that you felt like had made a sizable position? Well, firstly, like banks will want to understand where the value comes from. So there are some elements of where crypto or particularly like blockchain companies have become useful to banks. And this is kind of particularly in the trade finance space where there's a need for kind of an intermediary to sit where funds might be collected from one piece and then there's kind of like an escrow account where funds sit and then a collection order or some sort of purchase order has to be fulfilled on the other side. And in that use case, I think crypto and like that kind of permissionless system has been quite useful to kind of mediate. And I've seen that there have been a few banks that have adopted protocols as such. And so when there is that element of utility, that's where I think that there's a bit of a push for where banks might be swayed to kind of get into a partnership. But when it comes down to things like hype and it comes down to maybe accelerating your value or kind of get rich type ideas or products, I think it's a bit more tricky. Do I think crypto assets will become more tradable with banks? I think absolutely. Like I think there's definitely a need for banks to kind of expand their portfolios for consumers to be able to invest in more than just your penny stocks and S&P 500 stocks. So I think that's probably going to happen. There's probably going to be companies that provide that service to banks, provide that ability to provide that custodial experience to banks without them having to touch any of the funds or any of the kind of ledgering required. But uh, yeah, I think customers will still want that element of crypto. But yeah, kind of summarizing, I would think that utility is key, at least in terms of adopting protocols. But customers ultimately sometimes don't care about utility. So those sorts of things will still become important to bank, but not with them directly kind of touching their hands. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. The first was really talking about the boom and bust cycle in fintech and Web3. So we talk about easy money, but also some of the talent inflows that was attracted by the early successes in the space and how the bus cycle is causing more talent to flow around and potentially start new startups as well. The second is really about avoidable founder mistakes from your perspective as a syndicate leader and as a fintech executive. So it was interesting to hear you bucket it between early stage mistakes around product market fit and the viability of the actual solution, whether it's a one-stop shop or a bundle of random services or whatever it is, are you actually adding true value and are you truly empathizing with the customer versus adding middle stage founders about what their go-to-market really is when you're at scale. So I thought it was an interesting conversation about the third point, 
which is banks as either seen as the enemy, uh, Goliath, or are they seen as distribution partners as well as potential customers? So there's an interesting debate there that doesn't seem to be resolved, but it sounds like a common roadmap to success is really starting out by tackling something that the banks haven't really solved for, and then eventually making a decision about whether you can actually scale that enough to compete with them or to just partner with the banks and use it to service their customers instead. So really interesting. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Vinay. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. This is fun. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.